morning, Arcadia. Good morning. Good morning. Great to be back. Um, I really missed you guys, believe it or not. Yeah, I know. Hey, there are a lot of new people here this morning. I just some walking people are walking by. So my name is Frank. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and we are glad that you're here. Redemption Church is one church with nine congregations. We are the Arcadia flavor of Redemption Church. We're about to be ten congregations. Next, next month, this congregation is planting Scottsdale with Sean Mortensen and Rick Humble, and we're excited about that. Uh, but uh, we are glad that you are here. If, you have, if you're new here and you have any questions, you want to talk to anybody, be sure you come and see us. We'd be glad to get you connected. As I said, uh, glad to be back. You know, I've been gone uh, more than two weeks. Been in the um, Midwest, been in uh, Illinois, Iowa, and Wisconsin. This is kind of our annual Midwest trip, and, and I got to say, there, there is a really big part of me that couldn't wait to get back to work, but there's a big part of me that wishes I could just spend the next three months eating corn on the cob. Anybody from the Midwest? Can I get an amen on that? Yeah, that's right. Corn on the cob is one of the best delivery devices for buttering salt. <laughs> Sundays while I was gone, I was receiving uh, texts and emails both Sundays talking about how wonderful uh, it was to hear from them and, and what a great job that they did. One text, of course, said, you don't need to come back, so that's all the fun we're going to have this morning. This is a really heavy, heavy morning. This tends to happen to me when I've been gone for a while. I just... I, especially when I'm around a lot of really good preaching, because uh, uh, part of the time I'm gone, uh, we're gone during the summer, is actually at Village Creek Bible Camp in Northeast Iowa. It's, it's a camp where people pay money to go and spend a week of their vacation listening to ten sermons in five days. And there were two pastors there, myself, I did five of them, and, and another one, Sam Key, who's a pastor in Deerfield, Illinois, and uh, he was just absolutely magnificent. And so you start to hear really wonderful preaching. You know, you just get to sit and, and receive that. And then, you know, your mind starts to work if, if you're a pastor you're into this. And so I just have so much to share. That's why we only did two songs instead of three uh, this morning. Um, so very heavy. I, I kind of went over a couple of these things with um, some people all, all, all this last, uh, late this last week, kind of saying, what do you think? And they're going, it's, it's helpful and should be said, but it's going to be really, really heavy. So uh, the first thing I want to deal with, and then we'll get into our sermon in Mark, which uh, uh, Aaron just read. Uh, I, I, I want to, we have become a church that, uh, it, I think this is really important. We love to take cultural issues, things that are really hot in the public sphere, and strain them through a theological grid and speak about them Theologically, Rather than just reacting the way the vast majority of the culture does, especially with social media now, we just, we just react. It, you know, it's, it's the uh, uh, Louis C.K. thing. You know, we live in a culture where just because we get to do something, everybody's like, why would I do it? And, then, and we don't think about it before we actually go and do it. Uh, I want to strain one of the big issues that happened the last couple of weeks uh, through a theological grid and see if we can, if that can help. Uh, straining issues through the scriptural grid, the, the gospel grid, the theological grid, I will tell you, don't confuse simplification with clarity. Those are two different things. Uh, straining an issue through a theological grid does not always simplify it for us. In fact, many times it makes it more difficult for us, to be honest with you. 
But it does bring clarity. It will always bring clarity for us. I want to talk about, um, and I don't, I've been asking all week long, how do you pronounce this lion's name? Is it Cecil or Cecil? It is Cecil. Okay, because then there's people on television who have been pronouncing the lion's name incorrectly. But I want to I want to talk a little bit about this whole blow-up over the lion, which has been fascinating. Uh, three things about Cecil. Number one, Scripture very clearly tells us that apart from Jesus, our hearts, our unredeemed hearts, our fallen hearts, are wicked, deceptive, and evil. If, however, we are in Christ, we are a new creation, we have a new gospel heart, and we have a mind that is constantly being renewed by God's word. That's what Scripture very plainly tells us. Here's the challenge in our culture. Our culture now tells us that the highest ethical value is for people to just follow their heart. <clears throat> if you just follow your heart, you need to follow your heart. In your heart, you will find truth. In your heart, you will find what's best. So go to your heart. Unfortunately, they never distinguish between a gospel heart and a, an unredeemed heart. And so you have all these unredeemed hearts that are following that heart. And so our unredeemed apart from Jesus' heart is what people are following. Well, here's the problem. Let's start taking that to its logical conclusion. Let's consider that through the Cecil lens here, okay? If we live in a world where everyone follows their heart, then Cecil had to die. Cecil had to die. And there will be more Cecils. The dentist that killed Cecil was merely doing what culture persistently and mindlessly proclaims, follow your heart. And if our highest ethical call is to follow our hearts, people will eventually do something that ticks you off. They will. You can count on it. So those who say, well, just follow your heart, or I'm just being true to my heart, will necessarily find conflict and consequences. It is not the path to the easy life. Second, North American culture has a new addiction and a new false god. It's outrage. It's outrage. We are so into outrage now. I read an essay this last week, and he hit the nail on the head. He said, it feels good and it's easy to hate someone on the internet. It's funny. Uh, Psalm 135, especially verses 15 through 18, but Psalm 135 tells us that whatever idol we worship, whatever false gods we serve, we actually end up losing our personhood and become like that which we are worshiping. We become like our idol. And in this case, we become outraged. In fact, uh, the psalm says, really, you're becoming less human than God desired for you to be. Jesus, the pathway to humanity is actually to follow Jesus. And outrage is merely self-righteousness and pride piously repackaged. And the funny thing about outrage, if you've noticed, is that it's a competition. It's a competition. We're constantly comparing our outrage to others and insisting that we're the ones that have the highest moral ground. Well, you're upset about one lion. Well, let me tell you something. I'm upset about all the abuse of animals. Oh, yeah? You're upset about the abuse of animals? Well, I'm upset about abortion and Planned Parenthood. Well, you're upset about Planned Parenthood? I'm upset about gender inequality. You see how this goes? And it ends up, it, it, it's, it's exhausting, it's self-defeating, and ultimately, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, it's vain and meaningless. And by the way, this, the, the Atlantic has a terrific essay on this. You should look it up and read it.
Last point. If people, including and especially Christians, including and especially Christians, if we continue to pursue fulfillment, purpose, and meaning in life apart from Christ, we will not only kill lions, but we will sell fetal parts. There are some of you who are like, he's talking about the lion, but not Planned Parenthood? Is he serious? There, I think that's Planned Parenthood. And by the way, just a little diversion here. Uh, some people are, are trying to help us feel better about the Planned Parenthood thing by saying, no, 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 we're really not selling them for profit. It's just to cover our expenses. I'm sorry, but that doesn't help me get my mind around that fact any easier. They're still selling these parts, which I think is a problem. It destroys our humanity, which is what Jesus has come to redeem. So if we continue to pursue fulfillment and purpose and, and meaning in life apart from Christ, we're going to kill lions, we're going to sell fetal parts, we're, we're going to use corporations and causes and governments and churches to oppress people with our power and to scam people out of money. And we will legitimize every possible errant behavior creative mind can conjure, no matter how injurious and destructive it is. We just need to get used to that and understand that. So church, the answer is not outrage. The answer is Jesus. But the church, that would be us. We need to start truly believing it and living according to the call of the gospel. Love God and love our neighbors. We are as culpable as anyone, if not more, because we know the truth. Yeah, we are actually called to a higher standard. Those who are in Christ are free. We're free from sin. We're free from Satan. We're free from death. And we are free from the worship of false gods. Gods which never fail to fail us. Those who have been liberated by the resurrected Christ do not need to kill lions. We also don't need to worship them. So, there's sermon number one. Let me pray and we'll go into sermon. Lord God, I pray that we would just, we would really just be directed and focused on you, your son, and filled by your Holy Spirit. God, remind us that, that the beginning of wisdom is actually knowing you, fearing you, revering you, and submitting to you. Help us to do that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in Mark chapter 10 continue working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And there's a lot here today. Aaron didn't even read the whole passage. We're, we're actually starting in verse 1 of chapter 10 and going all the way through 31. There's three different sections of Scripture here. So there's a lot here today, very heavy stuff. We're going to talk about marriage, we're going to talk about faith, and we're going to talk about idols and identity. All three of those things are, are dealt with in these 31 uh, verses. And, and each, obviously, each one of these things could be a separate sermon. Each one of these things could actually be a separate series on several different Sunday mornings. And, and there's many ways that we could approach these texts and handle them. Uh, and the title for these 31 verses that we got from Luke, um, not, not Luke the Gospel, but Luke, who's in Gateway, who puts together all this stuff for us, is Kingdom Teachings. These are Kingdom Teachings, and that's true. But, but I, I believe we also find a theme in these, in these three little narratives, these three pericopes. Uh, and that's how I'm going to approach it today. Here's my big idea. Now, David chastised me earlier. He said, that's not a big idea. That's a title. But I'm still going to go with it because I, couldn't, I didn't have time to change the slide. So here's the big idea. The big idea is adventures in missing the point. 
these 31 verses, Adventures in Missing the Point. Uh, we're going to start with verses 1 through 12. I'll read that. And this is the section on marriage. Okay. And he, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them. What did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and, and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote me this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave or be knitted together with his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked Jesus again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, right out of the gate, it's a tough, tough subject. And marriage leads us into all other, a lot of other things, sexuality and all that stuff. And, and, and I know for a fact just when you have this many people gathered, there's people that are struggling in their marriage. And so you're either really dialed in or you're a little afraid or whatever. Um, and, and not all of your questions are going to be answered here this morning. And so I would really encourage you, if you have questions beyond this morning, more to unpack, contact us. Contact the office. Contact me. You can find my email on the website. And we'll set up an appointment. We can talk about this more. Okay? But having said that, let's now just kind of unpack this in terms of how we miss the point of this passage, these 12 verses. People have for years used these 12 verses, this text, for, for a great number of misguided reasons. We approach this text and we ask questions like this. What are the precise rules about divorce? When can I end my marriage biblically? We always throw that word in. Do I have a biblical divorce or is it just a non-biblical? What is it that I can do with marriage, technically, and still be okay with God? And can we use this text for an in or out analysis of who's righteous and who isn't? We, we, we do that with this text. And, and those are not necessarily illegitimate questions, but if we use the text primarily for those reasons, we are missing the point. We're missing Jesus's. First of all, this is another instance where the professional religious people come and test Jesus. And one thing for sure we can glean uh, from this little exchange is that marriage and divorce were just as controversial, convoluted, and confounding then as it is today. If you read the ancient rabbinic teachings and commentary on this Deuteronomy passage that, that they cite here. There's a little passage in Deuteronomy on this. If you read all the rabbinic, ancient rabbinic commentary and, and, um, uh, and, and teachings on this passage, you will find, surprise, surprise, that there are both liberal interpretations of the text and very conservative interpretations of that Deuteronomy text. For instance, the, the school of Shammai, that's, he was a famous, not Shamwow, Shammai, he was a famous, a famous rabbi. The school of Shammai clearly says, the only biblical reason you can get divorced is adultery. 
It's the only one. But then there's the school of Hillel, which comes along and says, no, actually, a husband can divorce his wife. Interesting. A husband can divorce his wife if she prepares a bad meal. Or he just doesn't like her very much anymore. See, liberal, conservative, you get that? Now, it, we live in a completely different context. I understand that. No man would ever divorce his wife for a bad meal. But these, these issues were as challenging for them as they are for us today. We're constantly trying to figure this out. And, and of course, from marriage comes all these questions about sexuality and, and things. And so these issues trouble us so much more. That, how many times do you have... Do you have to talk about gossip? I mean, we, gossip is a sin, and it's a problem in the church, but do you, do you ever devote the, the amount of time the churches devote to sexuality and marriage and things like that? No, because this is really tough. Not that gossip isn't a problem, but this is really tough stuff. And it's legitimate that we would deal, time, deal with this for so much time, because these are painful issues. Divorce is a painful issue. It's a painful thing. Adultery is very painful. Abortion is painful. Even if you are convinced it was the right thing to do, it's still tough. Same-sex issues, gender identity, painful. And, and scripture is pretty clear about this. Sexual sin is particularly destructive to the mind, body, and soul. It just, you read those passages and you say, okay, scripture even says it. this is tough. This is, these are tough areas. And so as a result, we tend to miss Jesus' basic intent on how he answers the question about divorce. We look at this and we, we tend to think, oh, he's setting up rules for divorce, which, which if, if I know the rules for divorce, that will lead to a better understanding of marriage. No, not really. I mean, my marriage will be stronger as long as I know how I can Okay, okay, so that's, that's kind of like you go to the bank and you secure a bank loan. And rather than trying to figure out how to meet your commitment and, and maintain your covenant with the bank of paying back all of, your, all of your payments, you're now feverishly searching through the loan documents looking for the fine print as to how you can get out of paying out back the bank. Is that how you're going to fulfill your commitment to the bank? By knowing when you don't have to pay them? But that's the way so many Christians approach this text, and it's too bad, really. Uh, what Jesus is telling the Pharisees here is that this text in Deuteronomy is a text of concession, not a text of intention, and there's a difference. He's saying, God is just conceived because of your dark hearts, because of your fallen nature, he's conceding this one little thing to you. But if that's what you're going to focus on, you're missing the point because that's not God's intention for marriage. Divorce was never his intention for marriage. And so this is really indicative of our hard hearts. And Jesus even says it. He says, you know, we have these challenges not because it's what God intended, but because of the fallen human heart. The fallen human heart is so hard that we do silly things. Like, and I've seen this. We, we, we spent months or years. i got to get married gotta get married. Marriage becomes the holy grail for some people. I gotta get married. I gotta get married. This is how I'm gonna get fulfilled. I gotta have a romantic love in my life. I gotta get married. I gotta get married. I gotta get married. And then they get married, and what's the first thing they do? Well, this wasn't all that was cracked up to be. I wonder how to get out of this. How do I get divorced? How do I get divorced? How do I get divorced? 
That's the way our hearts are, though. This is the problem. If you want to make marriage work, let's talk about gospel-centeredness and God's intentions. That's what Jesus is saying here. You don't learn how to fly a plane by following the instructions on how to make a crash landing. Amen? <laughs> Those of you who have been in athletics, um, when you won, when you were successful in athletics, did you do it because you focused on a strategy for how to make yourself feel better after you lost? Is that how you did it? Aren't we goofy? <laughs> God's intention for marriage cannot be determined from teachings on divorce. You miss the point. And, and this is really part of our fundamental problem. Part of our fundamental problem is we are always looking for what one pastor calls the minimalist holiness requirements. The minimalist holiness requirements. So, how low can we set the bar so that God still likes me? Okay? That's not the gospel. Here's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus did the full maximum for our holiness. He went to the cross and became sin so that you and I might be redeemed. There's nothing we can do to be more holy than Jesus, and Jesus is the standard. And so we lean into Jesus, not into our own understanding of what holiness is. Jesus makes the intent of marriage desperately clear in verses 7 through 9. Let me reread those. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Uh, he's, he's quoting in part there from, from Genesis chapter 2, which we will certainly get to. But let's just unpack those few little verses there. He said God made them. God made you and I. He created us. This is God's deal. Marriage is not a human-made mechanism for happiness but a God-ordained institution for the pursuit of holiness and for sanctification. Do you get the difference? It's a big difference. Not one person shook their head. Do I have to say it again? <laughs> and, and he made us male and female, one man, one woman. James Edwards in his commentary writes this, By expressly mentioning the two sexes, Jesus declares that maleness and femaleness are rooted in the creative will of God and are foundational for marriage. Which leads then to the fact that marriage is also covenantal. You see those that like a man will leave his parents. Do you have any idea how revolutionary this was? This is the only ancient text that I know of where a man leaves his family when he finds a wife. The other ancient texts talk about how the man just brings his new wife into his already established family with his parents, and by the way, brings in another wife and another wife. God says, no, 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 no. Your marriage is a new creation, and that man was created to be a one-woman man. Have you heard that excuse lately, by the way? I guess God just didn't make me as a one-woman man. <laughs> well, you can find some ancient texts that would verify that, but they're not written by God. So it's covenantal. A man leaves his parents and now is fully devoted to his wife. 
And they are a new creation. He leaves his parents. They have a new family, a new tribe. And the two become one. That's language of consummation. The two become one. And, and that consummation is a privileged event. It's a privileged event. The two of you have said, this is it for life. You and I are going to experience, your spouse and you, are going to experience, <laughs> just be clear, are going to experience a level of, of intimacy and vulnerability that, that is that is not the same as the Garden of Eden. It's not paradise yet, but by a gospel-centered, God-ordained marriage, we can at least start to approach that intimacy. That, that language, and it's a privilege, and, and, and it is, the privilege is this special, unique intimacy that you are supposed to have with your spouse. And then it comes full circle. Jesus says, what therefore God is doing together, let not, not man separate. Here you go. So, how many of you have ever eaten applesauce? Have you ever eaten applesauce? You know, all right, those of you that haven't, do you know what applesauce is? Okay. Right. Can you turn applesauce back into the apple? No. That's what God's view of marriage is. You've been joined together. You're knitted together now. You're a new unit. That's his ideal for marriage. That's a pretty high calling. I understand that. We need power outside of ourselves to be able to do that. We need God's power. We need, we need the gospel. Marriage is not a human-made mechanism for happiness. It is a God-ordained institution for the pursuit of holiness and sanctification. By the way, lest you walk out of here and say, Frank is anti-happiness. I am not. <laughs> but the road to happiness is never to pursue happiness. Have you ever noticed that? Happiness comes as a byproduct of pursuing God. We need to understand. We need to get our priorities straight. C.S. Lewis has got a bunch of great stuff on it. So we have a kind of, here's our big idea is adventures and missing the point. This, this little section has a sub-big idea, and here it is. God-centered marriages are God's plan. God-centered marriages are God's plan. Now, it's about to get all NR17 up in here. I, I want you to just warn you, okay? Hide the kids, all right? But I'm going to read from the Bible. Okay? Here's the idea for marriage coming out of Proverbs. And there's a lot, Proverbs 5. There it is. And, and there's a lot of metaphorical language here. I want you to understand. So be creative here. Alright? So, it says, drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. Now, is Solomon talking about a guy who's really thirsty? Awkward pause there, okay. <laughs> Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? No. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Here's my personal testimony about this gospel-centered marriage thing, okay? And some of you know my story a little bit. I would love to just take one uh, month and give you the whole thing. But uh, Jackie, my wife Jackie, is the only woman I have ever 
been with known David romantically as a Christian. And she is the only woman who, and I hate to put it in terms as crass as this, but I want to get the point across. She's the only woman in my life that not only did I never get tired of her, but my love and level of intimacy with her has only increased over the years. I've been married next month, 28 years, and it has never been better. And that's not because she's special or I'm special. That's what a gospel-centered marriage can do. And I want you to hear that. It's true, familiarity can breed contempt, amen? But a gospel-centered familiarity will breed the kind of intimacy that you and I have always wanted but have never been able to figure out how to do. Genesis 2, 24 and 25. Therefore a man will leave his mother and father Hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, and the man and woman were both naked and not ashamed. Paradise. Emotionally, spiritually, vulnerable, authentic, and intimate. Not quite done. You know, he does, Jesus does have these adultery comments in verses 11 and 12. Yeah, Jesus says, to divorce one and marry another, it's not a good thing, it's sin, it's adultery. But I'll tell you, again, we get so focused on this that we fail to forget, we fail to remember, sorry, we fail to remember the other adulteries in our lives. It's like we're so busy pointing out this adultery in other people's lives that we, it's, it's like a distraction to make sure that everybody doesn't see the adultery in our lives. You're committing adultery when you look at porn. You're committing adultery when you have sex before marriage. You're committing adultery when you burn with passion for someone who is not your spouse. Would you like me to keep going? Now, I'm not excusing the, the divorce and remarriage thing. That's not it. But I am saying that's not what Jesus' focus is here. They asked a question. What he is saying is that if your marriage is God-centered and gospel-powered, you'll never have to worry about this. And, and I am saying this. Divorce and adultery and, and abortion and homosexuality and acts of lust and all the rest, they are not unforgivable sins. The intention of Jesus' teaching here is not to shackle those who had a failed marriage with debilitating guilt. That was never his intention. All guilt was released at the cross. And there is, after all, no instance of Scripture when somebody who seeks forgiveness in Christ has been turned down. No instance. So yes, even those who have been involved in sexual sin can seek Christ. But, but Edwards has a really good comment about this to close this section. He says this, The question in our day of impermanent commitments and casual divorce is whether we as Christians hear the unique call of Christ to discipleship and sanctification in marriage rather than easy acts. All right, moving on. Uh, believe it or not, it doesn't get any easier. <laughs> Next paragraph, 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. 
again, told adventures in missing the point. I've been around so many Christian settings where we just over-sentimentalize this, this paragraph. Oh, Jesus and children. I actually had somebody at another church once when I was teaching on this say, please don't bring doctrine into this. Let's just celebrate that Jesus and children are together. What about where Jesus teaches? Uses this as a teaching opportunity. That's doctrine right there, man. And think about where Mark places this in the narrative. He places it right after the marriage blow-up and right before the blow-up with the rich young ruler. Both, are, both of those texts are considered really important texts that we dissect and study. And, and this text actually informs both of them. It's, it's part of Mark's narrative prowess, the way he said, right, this little paragraph in here informs both of these flanking paragraphs here. Your marriage is going to have problems if you depend on human principles and not God to sustain you. We need childlike faith in the midst of our marriages. And we will always fall short of the kingdom of God when we depend on our stuff and our deeds and not God. We need childlike faith. What Jesus is getting at here is that, is that children tend to have a faith that doesn't demand anything beyond the faith the way we do for fulfillment. It's like, yeah, we got faith in Jesus, but we need this extra stuff too for our fulfillment. No, you just need just need Jesus. I, I, what we do, I'm guilty of this too. We, we, we demand guarantees and right outcomes and easy circumstances and surefire methodologies with little or no inconvenience and, and absolutely no discomfort. We just want comfort. And, and neither the text on marriage nor the rich young, rich young ruler are motivated from a position of childlike faith. If they were, they wouldn't be in the, in the Bible. Both start from a self-centered point of view, a point of view that says, I am important and I bring something of value to the table. Marriage? Well, what's in it for me? Look at me. I'm a great person. I, I'm bringing me into this marriage. I mean, that's pretty cool, you know? And this, this marriage thing is supposed to complete. Your job is to complete me. See how that works? That's a marriage headed for disaster, by the way. And the rich young ruler, I'm so wonderful, I deserve to be saved. And I'm so wonderful, I don't have to give up any of my stuff or my good deeds in order to be saved. Childlike faith says, just give me Jesus. And notice I said childlike faith, not childish faith. A childish faith is self-centered and self-centered and self-absorbed faith. Childlike faith is a faith that recognizes our complete and utter helplessness apart from God. Listen very carefully to what's happening here. Jesus is indignant with his disciples. It's the only place in the New Testament where this word is used to describe Jesus' mood. It's a high level of displeasure. It's, it's the kind of thing that I never, I never want to be in this situation with Jackie and, or Jesus. And what causes this indignity is the disciples' failure to recognize the helplessness, the defenselessness, and the powerlessness of children. And they just want to be with Jesus. And this says so much about what you and I need to hear today about this childlike faith. Number one, faith in God makes no demands. We simply receive. We receive the love, mercy, compassion, redemption, and justification of Jesus. Secondly, Jesus understands and looks longingly to people who, have, who truly have nowhere else to turn for power, for sustenance, for hope, and for help. That's childlike faith. Andrew Wall asks this question. Have you noticed that over history, the center of Christianity is consistently moving away from places of worldly power and wealth? When Christianity is in a place of power for a long time, for a long period, 
The radical message of sin, grace, and the cross become muted, then lost. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter. And, and, and so the kingdom of God will leave places like that. And then third, Jesus rarely stresses the virtue of a person, but rather stresses the helplessness and the faith of a person. And that's what it takes to get in the kingdom of God. An acknowledgement of your helplessness and, and, and your need for faith. So, big idea. Adventures in missing the point. Here's the sub-big idea. Our virtue does not save us, but rather in our utter helplessness, Jesus accepts, saves, and justifies us. Now, contrast that childlike faith with this next guy. Here's the passage that Aaron read. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and, you will, and then you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it is, uh, and how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, because in their culture, if somebody had wealth, it was interpreted as a sign of blessing from God, that you're in with God if you have wealth, and that the poor people were not being blessed by God, they weren't in with God. So this was shocking teaching to them. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, yes, that would be a sewing needle, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, Then who can be saved? Because the, the saved ones are obviously the rich ones, blessed by God. Then, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is not one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are the first will be last and the last will be first. So contrary to the helplessness and unsullied trust of the children, this guy has all sorts of faith in three things. His possessions, his morality, and his identity. His possessions, his morality, and his identity. All three things that you and I struggle with today and need to renounce and purge at the throne of grace. And, and again, this is another adventure in missing the point. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that what Jesus is doing here is he's sort of, he, he's, he's, he's sort of teaching a, a salvation through philanthropy here. You know, the way to salvation is to make sure you just give all your stuff away, take a vow of poverty, and live a simple life. No, 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 that's not it at all. He's not saying that rich people can't get into heaven. That's not what he's saying. And, and besides, just again, think about this logically. I mean, if you give your stuff to, to somebody else, well, now they're going to hell. <laughs> I grew up in the 60s. We had a game. I think it was a Mattel game. I tried to look it up on the internet. We had a game for a while. Uh, some of you older people maybe remember this. The game was called Time Bomb. Anybody remember that game? 
Yeah, it's not very politically correct today. But anyway, the, the game, you open it up, and there was that big round black ball with the little fuse, fake fuse thing. You remember that? Okay. And so what you do is you, you, you crank, you sit in a circle with all your little friends at a birthday party. Okay. It, it's less violent than pin the tail on a donkey, believe me. But you're sitting in a circle, and you crank the thing, and then you pass it from child to child. And when, when this thing makes the explosion, it doesn't actually explode, which would be... But it doesn't actually explode, but it makes the explosion noise, and if you're holding it when it makes the explosion noise, you're out. It's kind of like violent musical chairs, okay? We were so bored in the 60s, I'm telling you. No internet, nothing to do, time bomb, okay? So, this is kind of like, give the stuff away, ah, I gotta I got give it away, I gotta, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. And so the rich young Mueller is looking at Jesus going, what? I gotta, okay. And like, and like so many people, he's looking at Jesus and he's saying, look at me, I'm so religious, I'm so moral, I'm so pious, I favor all the right causes, I do all the right things. I have done the impossible thing, I have made myself good in the sight of God. That's what he's saying, I have made myself good in the sight of God, I fulfilled the law. And Jesus says, alright, but there's just one thing you lack, go and sell everything, and then come and follow me. Do you see the lack of childlike faith that he has? And this is where we get hung up. The, the rich young ruler did not lack poverty. That's not what he lacked. He did not lack poverty. He lacks the faith it takes to trust Jesus rather than his stuff, his deeds, and his identity. The rich young ruler had a poverty of humility and trust. This is about the rich young ruler not fulfilling the first and second commandments. He, he may have, I don't know, maybe he did fulfill the seventh through the, ten, uh, the third through the tenth commandments. But Jesus is pointing out that you didn't even get the first two right. Without the first two, you really can't get the rest right. It, it, you know, you, you're to have no other gods and you're to make no idols. You, you, didn't, you didn't fulfill those two commandments. He's, he's pointing out the hypocrisy of the rich one. His gods, the idols that he had made in his life, were his possessions, his deeds, and his identity. And that theological truth is what becomes the basis for the rest of the conversation in this, in this section. Jesus says it's impossible, nearly, for a rich man to get into heaven, and they all, they all recoil at that. He says it's like, it's like a camel trying to get through a needle. It's just not going to happen. So, more adventures in missing the point. I heard people say, hey, Jesus is bagging on rich people here. Yay. No. He's bagging. If you want to use that vernacular, he's bagging on people who place their faith in something other than the gospel. That's what it is. You can be rich and be gospel-centered. It's like self-righteousness. Wherever you find your self-righteousness, that's why... He, Jesus makes this wonderful statement of truth. He says, what's impossible for man is possible with God. That's where salvation lies. It lies in God, the good news, the gospel. It's that simple. And again, there are people looking for loopholes. And so they come along and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There was a gate in the wall of Jerusalem that we believe was referred to as the eye of the needle. It was the eye of the needle gate. And it was a little bit smaller gate than most of the other gates around Jerusalem. And it was really hard for animals to get through it. But a camel could get through it if it crunched down real low and kind of crawled through it. That's the eye of the needle that Jesus is talking about. No, he's not. No, he's not. Another 
say, well, the, the Hebrew word for camel, um, or, or the Greek word for camel, sounds a little bit like the Greek word for, uh, for twine. And of course, it's really hard to thread a needle with twine. But you know, if you get it wet at the end and make it into a little point, maybe you can get it. No, it's not. There are no loopholes here. There are no loopholes here. He's saying whoever places their faith and confidence in anything other than the gospel will not get to heaven. That's the point. That's the gospel. And so we have this big idea, adventures in missing the point. Here's our sub-big idea for this section. Faith in anything other than Jesus, especially our good things and our good deeds, renders us Come to Jesus. Let me pray, and then uh, David's going to come up and lead us into our time of response. God, Thank you for your word and its truth. And I just pray that you, you would give us the, the courage and the wisdom to be able to live this out now. Live as gospel-centered people. Uh, God, we, we thank you for the sacrifice that your son made on the cross for us. And we just pray that we would appropriate that to us. As Paul says, that we would become like Jesus in his death. We ask it in Jesus' name.